We've considered God as giver, and we want to now uh, consider man as head. So we're looking at God, man, and woman with just one word uh, that describes their orientation to the marriage and orientation to one another. There's obviously many more words that could be used and much that has to be filled in here. But I mention again, uh, we're just dealing here with foundations, uh, just some of the basic foundational principles. And when we do that, I, I, we do this as well in premarital counsel, and I often encourage the couples, don't be, don't be put off by the fact that these are obvious things, that they, you could get this right on a test. Recognize this is the ground on which you're building your home. Uh, this, this is, this, you, you are never getting off this foundation and going to prosper. So knowing it well, making sure that it's solid, realizing that, that all of our lives we're coming to terms with what we know. Um, Jesus said of the, of the rabbi bringing out of his treasures both old and new ideas, uh, we do find nuggets of truth that we hadn't considered before, maybe some facts we don't consider before, but much of our lives as Christians, particularly after we come to a place of some level of maturity, is really about coming back to reconsider what we know and just constantly being reminded and exhorted of what we know to be the truth. But it, it helps us to deepen the roots in that truth because everything that we're facing in our culture is if, our, if we're a plant, our marriage is a plant, it's ripping at the roots. It's trying to pull it out and to try to get us not to think about it. So here we're fertilizing what we know to be the truth. So as we consider man as head, well, how's that sound for a topic in our culture? <laughs> Could you imagine words on a screen that are any less welcome right now than anything about to do with male leadership? In our cultural, current cultural climate, it's hard to imagine, but male as predator, male as oppressor are the dominant themes in our media today. D disdain for patriarchy, I, I don't know who's ever been at such a, a high place, and I don't know that patriarchy is a word that we need to use. Uh, uh, patrocentrism might be a better word of what describes uh, the biblical context, and that context is different from ours culturally in many ways. So we're not trying to, to repeat or uh, ape uh, biblical ancient context as such. But these ideas are, are just very much held in disdain today. We must understand this as God's people, that this disdain for male leadership, while often understandable because of what goes on in a sinful world, are very predictable as part of Satan's scheme to crumble the family. He has no intention to see the family strengthened. He has only the intention to see it torn apart. And this uh, opposition to male leadership and to a more egalitarian focus is really satanic in its orientation. The problem is not that men are leading the problem is not that men are leading and must be set aside for a more fair and balanced egalitarian approach. Culturally speaking, the problem is that men are not leading. They're not taking the responsibility to self-sacrificially steer, protect, provide for, 
and love their wives and children. So we see these predators plastered on, in, in the media and everywhere. Do we look at that and say, yeah, that's a man being a man and that's bad? I think what we should look at it is that's a man who's not being a man. Uh, that, that's a man who is a joke. Uh, he's everything that a man is not to be. We don't throw male leadership out the window because of individuals who aren't leading well. Uh, what our crumbling culture desperately needs is men who step forward courageously and responsibly and self-sacrificially to lead their wives and children well, not selfishly, not harmfully, not as predators, but as true men. That's not happening, and so the backlash is very understandable, but the world's proposal is to kick men to the periphery and to order them to watch from the penalty box. At every turn, we are instructed as men that it is our responsibility to be ashamed of our masculinity, to at least to soft-pedal it and not seek in any way, shape, or form to uh, encourage it, to develop it, to think about it. This state of affairs is not helping to stabilize the family in society. And again, if, if we look at this single-parent home, which is pervasive in certain uh, communities, in certain contexts, when we look at that disadvantage to children that is there, there's not a single word that will ever be offered about sexual promiscuity as a problem here that will ever be offered about men not taking responsibility and leadership. That will be stated on some level, but not in the real sense it would fix anything, would deal with anything. Because of the, the, the God of sexual freedom, we have all kinds of crumbling that's taking place, and we aren't able to put it in men's face that you need to lead. What we're saying is you're failing at leading, though we don't even use that word, men are just bad, but they're failing at leading, therefore they should be kicked to the periphery. And any, the worst thing in the world is for a man to actually be a man in our culture, in our setting. So, back to the point, Satan celebrates. Uh, while biblical manhood is an away game than in our culture, this is no time, I think, for Christians to back away and to say, we're, we're going to go soft on this point, we're not going to talk about it, we're going to go really light on it. To become sheepish and apologetic or to cave into social, societal expectations. <laughs> It's really time, like never before, I think, for a biblical vision of masculinity and male headship in the family to be staked as a beacon of hope to the world and as a source of protection for our families. And one quick plug for our boys. Uh, they are in a really bad setting. And that is, if, if I can picture this, I don't know if I can do it, but if I can picture this... In our cultural, under our cultural pressure, as Christian men, there's a tendency to say, I'm the leader, I know I have responsibility, I have these things to do, but I'm not going to say much about it. Because I, I can do it without really talking about it or really saying anything about it and incurring the wrath of the culture around. But what we're maybe failing to do there then at times is we're not teaching our boys. There's a lot I'm assuming and not saying that they're not going to pick up because they're being coached by the culture in which we live to stand on the periphery and not be a man. 
What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to lead? We need to tell them, help them see, encourage them, of course, first and foremost with our example, but not to walk around in a sheepish, apologetic way when we talk about these matters. Uh, We cannot change the world in which we live, but we can encourage such an environment in our homes and church as we shine the light of the gospel through our marriages. Um, and we'll try to nuance this and think through it and uh, all cheering and praise and thanksgiving for the emphasis of godly Bible-believing churches that speak against the notion that male leadership is aggressive and harsh and self-centered. We're all with that. But having said that, let's not move so far to the other end to accommodate our culture that we forget to talk about what a man is in the home. And what the Bible uses with this in this discussion is the word head. Headship. We want to talk about that for a moment. First, under the idea of the revelation of male headship in marriage. Headship is displayed in the creation narrative on a number of levels, and let me, uh, under that subpoint, go to another slide here. But first, having created both Adam, man, Eve, woman, in his image, and note that, both created in his image, equal before God, with the same dignity, one in standing before him, God named the human race Adam, the Hebrew Adam, his man. By the way, you can't use mankind anymore. You can't speak of man anymore. It's got to be human and humankind and that kind of thing. I I think we just have to be balanced there and to recognize that we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive, but I also think we ought to be very cautious that we understand the biblical terminology and that we don't fear it because that's what God called mankind, Adam, Adam. So, the, so Adam's actual name is man, and that is what God gives as a name for the race. Secondly, God created Adam before he created Eve. This is a significant point, not an insignificant one. 1 Timothy 2, 12-13 speaks very distinctly to this order as it speaks about relationships within the church. Thirdly, God commissioned Adam vocationally, instructed him morally, and released him to the task of subduing the earth before he created Eve. There's a significance here. Uh, I've said this often, but I think at our last seminar on this point like five years ago, but I I just, it helps me. It just, I mean, it would have been a really neat story if God had created Adam and Eve at the same time in different corners of the garden. And let Adam find her. I mean, I, you know, that, you could just play that out. He's, you know, whatever, walks in while she's in the river bathing or something and says, that's her. You know, that's the one that corresponds to me. I've been naming all these animals, and that's the one I'm looking for. That'd be a beautiful romantic story, wouldn't it? And, and it, what you could see in some sense that that might work. But it's not how God did it. And Paul's not afraid in that second bullet point in 1 Timothy to draw upon that relationship. Adam's doing things, he's working, he's been set up, he's going along, and then God creates Eve. There's there's a significance to that in how they relate to each other. This isn't just purely historical. 
but there's, a, there's, a, there's to be a, an application of it in the way they understand their relationship as husband and wife. God created Eve to be Adam's suitable helper. So he creates Adam first, but when he creates Eve, it is to complete her husband as a suitable helper, uh, terms that the Bible uses. And then, um, just to kind of close it out, Adam names Eve. And in the Hebrew thinking, way of thinking, uh, but beyond just that context, just in the way that, that God perceives it here in the creative uh, order, Adam's naming of Eve is a significant thing. There's a display of headship in all of this in the, in the uh, biblical narrative. This is why, uh, well, let me not even go on motives. Many who are troubled with this kind of discussion will also make sure that we understand that the early chapters of Genesis are just myth. They're not really actual history. They're not really to draw anything from it. It's just a myth for that time. Uh, but that doesn't appear by any means to be Jesus thinking. As he quotes from Genesis, as he speaks about Adam and Eve, he takes them to be historical individuals who, uh, who set a pattern, a paradigm for us. So we want to tag into this, not run away from it. But secondly, so first, headship displayed in the creation narrative. We see headship declared in the New Testament. Can't linger on this long at all, but just to state the obvious, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. While the nuances and the understanding and application of this will go on for the rest of our lives, this is not hard to understand, right? This is, this is a straightforward statement. <coughs> the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And notice again the, the connection with Jesus and the church. Let me a few reflections on this. In the mind of the giver of marriage, in the mind of the Holy Spirit who breathed out these texts, the husband as head of his wife is not a suggestion. It's not a moral goal to aim at. It's certainly not an outdated theory. As we see it here, it is a declaration. This means that if you reject the headship of husband in a relationship of marriage, you conceive marriage in a way that God does not think of it and cannot possibly bless it, at least on that level. The context of Ephesians, however, takes this idea and I think deepens it for us considerably. It's not just about marriage. Man is the head of his wife period, end of discussion, we need to recognize that that concept, man is the head of his wife, is integrated into the larger concept of Christ's redemptive purposes. We, we note this as we go back in the context of Ephesians, and he put all things under his feet and gave, to Christ, gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ's headship over all things is the ultimate triumph and fulfillment of salvation history. Back to 5.23, note the connection here. 
The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There's a, I, I don't think that's just saying by way of illustration, but I think it's saying that the gears lock together here. Christ's headship over creation locks together with a, a husband's headship of his wife. It's got to be understood appropriately, but in his role as head, Christ works to redeem the universe through the triumph of the gospel. And the husband as head incarnates the relationship between Christ as head and the church as his bride. So we're not messing around here with trivialities or mere traditions when we talk about the headship of a man uh, over his wife in relationship to his wife. It's not trivialities. It's not just one small point in a small conversation. It really locks into this larger redemptive theme of Christ as the head of his church and the one who is on a cosmic level redeeming all things. So we really kick against that concept, kicking against this cosmic redemptive purpose at the same time, if we do. The meaning of male headship the head, what does it mean then? So we look at the revelation of it. God has declared it, but what does it mean? What does it look like? The headship of the husband is a position of God-given authority. We've just seen it's declared. It's quite obvious that this is what God is saying, but what does it mean? It is, it is a statement of authority. We see that very clearly in Ephesians. Think if you're, what does the Bible mean by head? We start with the beginning of the book that speaks of it. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What is that? The ascension, the reign of the risen Christ in a place of authority and sovereign rule. Brought out, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. In understanding this passage, the only honest way to read these verses is to define head as a position of authority. Uh, Wayne Grudem, a a theologian and a um, Greek scholar, claims that every use of the Greek word kephale found outside the New Testament when used in the context of relationships always conveys the idea of authority. So he's a, a Greek scholar that's looking at the context of Paul's writings in that day, at that time. If you look at all of the extant documents, that, those documents that exist, you look at them and look wherever the word kephale is used. It can be used in different ways, just like we use it in different ways. We talk about the headwaters of the Mississippi in our fine state, right? I mean, it's a point of pride here in Minnesota. We have the headwaters of the Mississippi. You're not talking about a literal head, Right? We're talking about a source, a beginning. We can use the word that way. But in that context, quick trail, sorry, I'm, I'm losing something here, but um, those who take it that way love to talk about headship only, as, it can also mean source. So he's the source of his wife. She was created out of him. That's true the word can be used that way like we use headwaters of the Mississippi. But when he did the work of looking at the texts that actually talk about a relationship, not a river, 
then the word kephale, head, is always used with a sense of authority. That is, the person who is the head is in a position of authority with the other person in every use they've been able to find. Every document that exists in Greek that uses that word today, at least at this point, doesn't mean that if another one's found that that, that's, that destroys a point. It just makes a point very firmly. Kephale brings that concept with it. Now, okay, away game, right? I mean, can you think of a nation beyond America and maybe France where authority is a more ugly word? I, I mean, I... I um, the stories of our culture. Just I, I, I don't I don't watch a lot of movies, and so I feel like I, I'm no expert to speak on it. But anytime I do anything, you get into is this not a constant theme? The people in authority are the bad people, and the person that's the good person is getting squashed by the people in authority and has to wiggle out of the way and or takes on the establishment and wins the day. I mean, this is just such a common theme in our culture. Authority is always a bad thing. Let's not forget, as Bible-believing people, that God gave authority for our good, for our blessing, for the stability of our world. Authority is not a bad word, and we can't think of it in terms of it being a bad concept. Now, it can be misused, and that's what the whole problem is. That's why French heads dropped and Americans revolted. But as we face down that challenge, we must never forget that the nature of authority is defined by the source that assigns that authority. The nature of authority is defined by the source that assigns that authority. So in a democracy, governing authorities are commissioned to serve the will of the people. The nature of their authority reflects the desires of the constituency. And this is why we get up in arms with people in authority that take advantage of us. We fire them. We get somebody else elected. We raise a stink. And in a democracy, we ought to. They serve us. But the way they serve us is probably as much as anything a reflection of who we are than of people simply who misuse authority. But all that aside, the nature of a man's authority as a husband is not defined by the society It's not defined by a democracy. It is defined by God. His headship is designed to align with the cosmic saving agenda of Christ. And this changes everything. It completely reorders the whole way we understand headship. So the husband who says, I'm the ruler of my home, I can say whatever I choose, and she has to do it. Because I'm a Christian husband, I'm the head of my home, that's what it means. There's a guy that's completely confused. He does not even know what he's talking about. In fact, he's actually usurping God's authority as he pursues self-serving purposes. He may need to make some calls along the way that his wife does not agree with, but his headship is no right to get his way. It's a calling to represent the redemptive interests of Christ with respect to his wife as Christ showed his redemptive interests in the church. That changes the whole conception of it. So if a man is arguing with his wife about his right to exercise authority, 
if you're doing that, again, I'm preaching to the choir today, I'm quite convinced, but if you're doing that, I'm the head of my home, you need to submit to me, just stop it right there. It, it is, that's never going to get anywhere, and it's completely off track to begin with. You imagine we picture a husband demanding some selfish thing from his wife, claiming Jesus made me the head of my home and you need to submit to me because I'm the head of my home. And then we picture Jesus standing over there in the corner and watching this. Is that his idea? Is that what he is intending to say when it's husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of his church? I mean, I don't know if Jesus is over there weeping or with red eyes about to take the guy out you know that's got nothing to do with jesus has got nothing to do with the bible has to do with your own self-centered purpose you want an avenue to get your way that has nothing to do with this the man is head well let me go to this Husbands, love your wives. Here's headship. This is headship in action. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's headship. It's not an abuse of power. It is taking responsibility. And we come to that secondly then. It is a position of God-given authority. Authority that comes from God as a source. It is secondly a position of ultimate responsibility. Let's talk about that responsibility just briefly. Headship is a call to look long, to make the hard calls to shoulder the responsibility to pay the price and protect the highest interests of your wife. That's what headship is. It's not defined by her as such, though her opinion obviously is hugely important here. But it's really under the scrutiny of Christ as the head of his church. This is our call. This is what headship is. Headship is a call to self-sacrificially love your wife. We saw in Ephesians 5.25 quite pointedly and clearly. It is a call to spiritually purify your wife. It is a call to nurture intimacy with your wife. Let me just work through these. Uh, call to the, the, the responsibility in, in sub-point one, to look long, to make the hard calls, to shoulder the responsibility to pay the, the price, protect the highest interests of your wife. Um, this is taking responsibility. It, it, it is not positioning yourself so that you get your way. It is saying, I'm in the leadership position here. As we're plowing into the, the you have the, the bow, on, or the what's the thing, the front of the boat? <laughs> Bow, yeah, there we go, bow. Where did I, I got the right letters. Uh, the bow on the front of the boat, it's plowing into the water. I mean, you're, the, you're at that cutting edge, cutting into the water, leading, directing. Or that, the, the, the flock of birds that fly in the V, the, the geese, you know how they take turns, the one out in the front, cutting into the wind and taking that. That's the position you're in. Now, your wife may be particularly supportive and encouraging 
to that place. She may not be. And as we counsel and work with other couples, we recognize that we're in a lot of situations where she's not supportive. You're still flying out front. It's a call and a responsibility to, do, to live that way. It's a call to self-sacrificially love. As Christ loves the church, He does not put His own selfish interests first and say, I'm the head of the church. He lays His life down and dies. He takes that responsibility and gives His life away. And it says here that we're to love our wives as we love our own bodies. That is a, a self-interest uh, or a, a, an interest in her that is, is very high and very distinct. To put her highest interest first is, is the focus. Um, now, we'll get to this a bit in the next session, but on her part, it, it, why is it's really, you're really not in the leading place here to define whether or not your husband is loving you. Now, I want to be cautious there because there's men that are not loving their wives and it's not that their wife's supposed to just be quiet and say nothing. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there is sometimes a way that a man loves a woman that doesn't seem like it. And we've got to be cautious that we don't become the judge and the jury and say, you don't love me because you're not doing this. Real, please give me all the benefit of the doubt here because I realize there's certain scenarios you can play out and go, wow, that's really bad counsel. I'm talking kind of big picture. God has not placed a woman in the spot of being judge and jury about what love looks like. Now, obviously, he needs to know his wife, know what it is that is beneficial to her as she uh, is loved, and not to love her on his terms. All that understood. But just to say, just a word of, of caution to wives, uh, you're not the judge and the jury of what love looks like, particularly when he is at the bow, bow, at the cut, and why am I having trouble with that? At the cutting edge, he's, uh, let's go with the geese, he's flying first <laughs> up there. I need to get in a boat, apparently. Get in, um, he's there, it's, it's really a challenging spot to be in. It's a very challenging spot to be in when what you're striving to do is being constantly critiqued as falling short. Husbands, we're going to fall short in the area of love. Uh, and we're going to have to give the rest of our lives to learning how to love, to be watchful of where she is at and how we can bless her and how we can encourage her. But we want to be thoughtful um, in a genuinely loving way and just encouraging wives to support that. To spiritually purify your wife, that is the spiritual climate in your home, is your responsibility. She has a responsibility, a responsibility to be cooperative, a responsibility, in fact, to create a spiritual environment herself uh, around you and around her children, but the responsibility ultimately falls on your shoulders to create a spiritual climate in your home to lead your family to church, to be watchful of what your wife is reading and thinking about and considering. Uh, where is she at? Who is she listening to? What is she reading? Not to be nosy and distrustful, not to say she can't read. I heard one husband suggest that every single thing your wife reads, you need to read first. That's just 
Dumb is the nicest word I can think about it. He said, no. But who are the authors she's reading? What is she looking at? What is she listening to? You need to be responsible there. And of course, she can be challenging to you as well if, uh, if you're off track or something. But uh, just to say, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge of that. I, I'm leading in this. Headship is a call to nurture intimacy with your wife. And I want to end on this point with a few minutes that we have and to sort of narrow in here just a little bit more practically. But headship is a call to nurture intimacy with your wife. The guy thinking headship is my right to get my way is, is working against Jesus, but on this point, he's got no category. I mean, that doesn't work at all for me but it does work. Headship is a call to nurture intimacy with your wife. Hold fast to his wife. He is to hold fast to his wife, Genesis 2. They are to become one flesh, to be united. The cleave is the uh, old English word, which means the opposite today, but it's a good word because it's hard to find a better one because it means to bind, to, to unite, to be glued together. That's your job. That is your responsibility to see that that's happening. So husband, if your marriage is cold, if you're pulling apart as a couple, that's on you. And you need to take active leadership to work to nurture that. Your wife may be responsible for much of the trouble, certainly she is, but your call to headship is first and foremost a call to you to lead your wife in the pursuit of intimacy, oneness, friendship, trust, and environment of mutual edification. Your wife may be responsible for much of the trouble even in, in your home. If it's cold, if it's grown cold and you're, pull, you're pulled apart, but your call to headship is first and foremost a call to you to lead your wife in the pursuit of intimacy and friendship and mutual edification. And somebody might say, well, you don't know my wife. You don't know how hard that is. Um, you don't see what she does and what she fails to do. And I say, you're right, I don't. I'm glad I don't. I got my own marriage to worry about. Of course, nobody can understand all of the troubles and the pain that may befall a couple. But you still have a job to do. You still have a responsibility to take and to develop intimacy with your wife, a camaraderie, a oneness, a coming together, a gluing together, and a clinging together. That's your job to orchestrate that, to be at the leading point of it. She will help. She will encourage. She will instruct at times in a right way, in a helpful way. But that's you. It's not, I do my thing and the romance part and the intimacy part and the conversation part, I, you know, if she can get me to do it, I'll cooperate. That's not headship. That's weakness. That's not a man. That's being a wimp. Putting it on her, saying it's her job to work on those relational things. That's your job. As is very clearly indicated here. Um... I think practically speaking, there's a lot said on romance, uh, and I'm no guru on it by any means. But I think we've got to think of the Song of Solomon on the one hand, and to recognize that God's call to intimacy, to romantic love, is a wide-open call to come, and to pursue, and to celebrate this relationship I think we have to balance that, on the other hand, to a corruption that gets into the conversation with a self-serving indulgence 
seeking materialism and self-worship that can corrupt romance. I got to get things and I got to be at a certain place and we have to do this and do that. It doesn't need to be that, but do something. Uh, Men, take her on a date, get out of town, spend a quiet evening together where it's just the two of you. Um, It can be big, but it can be simple. Our house has gotten quiet and it's really fun. <laughs> you know, I, we miss the kids. We miss the noise. But it's fun, too. And the other night, we just sat in a little gas fireplace, turned off all the lights, and just stared at it. Didn't say anything. Didn't need to. But just to create those little moments, just one night, just for a short time, before we got back to all the other things we're doing, Uh, Just taking those moments, finding those places to just bind your hearts together. Spend some time together. Pay attention to sexual life. We've got to give ourselves to it, to be thoughtful about it. Let her know that you love her in every way that you can, as rightly as you can. Talk, show interest, dream, and plan together. Spend time talking. Create time to talk. You've got to do that. Work together. Maybe... uh, doesn't work for all of us, but it combines some of us together. As we work together on a project, it's, it's helpful to Dan and Beth. Uh, re, uh, recreate together. Get out in nature, go for walks, find times of refreshment. Get outside, breathe the air, even in the winter, and uh, just, just get out and, and be together. It's an important part of developing that intimacy. i got to stop at that, but we can apply and talk. Where are we at? Um... All right, I'm going to guide us now into the next segment before we come to uh, the last with woman as helper. But um, we have uh, about 15 minutes here, a little bit more, but by the time we get there, 15 minutes, to spend some time together as a couple in prayer. I may be talking to a few where that's not the most comfortable thought. It's okay. You're part of a marriage seminar. We're going to push you to this. It's good. It's good for you to pray. Thank God for each other in prayer. Pray as you wish. But you can do this. And if you can't do it, then talk to each other and just have a conversation. But I, I would assume everyone here certainly can. We're, we're followers of Christ and we come to Him in prayer and you pray together, so do it now. Let's not look at this as perfunctory ritual. I'm thinking this could be the most important moment in our time together here. That we spend some time just with one another in a few moments to pray about our marriage, to pray for one another, to encourage each other as husband and wife in this, in this calling. So please do this. Don't just like go eat and just talk and talk to some other couple. Don't talk to each other. This is you as couples. Let's go, and we want to be back in here at 11.20. So there's 20 minutes between now, and you're free to pray the whole time, to pray for 10 minutes if you need to take a break or whatever. But let's go, just go wherever you want, just get together and pray, and we'll be back here at the next session at 11.20.